0: I'm Teffer, And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah! A show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah! This week we are wrapping up our unexpectedly fraught read-through of Harry Potter. We're joined today by a patron whose name we have been mispronouncing for years. This is Catherine Reshi. I said that right this time, right? That's right. Okay, and uh, Catherine has been one of our patrons for a while. So she phoned in to talk with us about book seven. Book seven, uh, as we all know, The Deathly Hallows, it's a change of pace. It's the end of the saga. It's where things that have been set up since the earliest books come to fruition. And it's a real ride of friendship and adulthood and life and learning. So let's dig in. How was this read through of the final chapter, I guess, for, for you guys?
1: I, I definitely I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I think I was also finishing this one right before all of the, like, additional... I, I have been really enjoying, and I did not coin this name, Turf. So when all the additional Turf stuff uh, came to light, so I, I think I finished this reread without sort of having that right in my brain, which was nice. I do enjoy this one. I'm always struck by how different it is from the others because we don't have that, like, grounding of, like, the school year. It's very interesting how this one sort of breaks out of that. But I enjoyed it. I do I do always enjoy this one. I I, I find the Battle of Hogwarts very compelling, and and Neville gets to be awesome in this book. Neville's always awesome, but Neville gets to be very awesome in this book, which makes me happy. Yeah, how about you, Catherine? Yeah, I finished my rereading this morning, so
2: uh, I definitely did have some thoughts that I maybe wouldn't have had if uh, what you referred to uh, had not been so present in my mind. Um, I think this was also, I think this is only the third time that I've read through this book, and I think it was the first time that I read it without so much thought about the plot and more thought about how the characters were being portrayed. And that really, uh, I don't know, I felt like there was a lot of things that I had missed previously uh, that really don't have any impact on the story arc itself, but really impact how I see the characters and and change my mind about some characters who I had maybe liked or disliked in the past, and that was really interesting to experience.
0: I really do find that the characters have been feeling different to me on this read-through, and I don't know if it's just because it's the first kind of proper read-through of this series I've done in a long time. I've read a book here and there for comfort reading, but I think this is the first time I've kind of done the whole thing, Mm, maybe even since I was a teenager. And it is really interesting to see how perceptions of characters change. But Bailey, I think you brought up like how different this book is from the rest of the series. And I remember even reading it the first time I read it when it first came out and after my older sisters got through it and I finally got my hands on it, (laughs) tearing into it. It's just, I kept being like, but when do they go to Hogwarts? But when do they go to Hogwarts? And so many of the kind of landmarks that we rely on for the narrative throughout the series are just gone. And I do think that that really reflects the way life is happening for the characters uh, because a lot of the familiar things are suddenly gone. And it was kind of a trip to read it right now in a time period where I, I feel like there are a lot of present-day current parallels between our current global state and the state of the wizarding world in Deathly Hallows. And that was kind of eerie, especially considering, you know, the fact that (laughs) the author of these books is kind of intimately involved in the Voldemort side of things now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting book to read at this current moment, both, of course, because of, yeah, the political there's so many so many parallels that yes the author is just very um unaware of i guess um the other thing that i found interesting reading this book at this time in ter- was in terms of the like isolation um and that was cuz i i think i i could empathize with the trio in that like Several months stretch where they're just alone in the woods. So much more after having spent, you know, three three odd months essentially locked in a two bedroom apartment um, with well, currently just myself. Previously, myself and my roommate and her boyfriend. And so that was very interesting on this read as well. Um, but I do I really liked what you said, Catherine, about really sort of reading for character more. Uh, this reread, because I think that it does- this book does- has a lot of really interesting stuff going on with the characters. I think partially because we have all of the the sort of surroundings of Hogwarts stripped away, and there is so much of the book where it's just Harry, Ron, and Hermione, so we get to spend more time with them. Um, Anyways, I would be really interested to hear who, who you maybe most changed your mind on, or who was like most interesting for you, this reread?
2: I think I paid more attention, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is going to sound weird, uh, to Harry, because you would think that every time uh, you read the books, you pay attention to Harry, because you can't not. But uh, it really struck me through kind of, well, most of the book, where uh, Hermione is so adamant that Harry should be trying to seal off his connection to Voldemort, right? And uh, he feels that he shouldn't and he I can't quite tell if it's that he can't articulate to himself why he shouldn't or if he just can't but it it feels more that it's not just his inability it's that he wants it there and he feels it's important and it's frustrating reading it that he can't seem to articulate that and I think that's a frustration that you feel a lot with Harry as a narrator that like he just doesn't explain things to other people, and that would fix a lot of the problems that come up for him. I felt like he did mature in a way in this book, and that you could see it more than in other books. And I think it ties into what uh, what you've been talking about with uh, the last two books, how these books uh, kind of walk the line between being children's books and, and young adult books. And I think here you actually get a glimpse into the way that he is weighing risks and making plans in a way that seems different from when he was a child.
0: He really does seem so much more mature in this one. And I, I feel like part of what kind of weighs into the conflict between Ron, Hermione, and Harry is the fact that Harry and Hermione have kind of found it in themselves to grow up to act adult, and Ron needs to learn that. And one thing that I really have been thinking going through the series this time, and I can't remember if I've talked about it or not yet, but it really has struck me the way Ron does not understand the privilege that comes with having this supporting, loving family that he has, but also a very coddling family. And you know, Hermione also has parents who are active in her life, uh, but they seem to be you know, they're both professionals. They seem to be kind of less of a doing all your laundry and making all your meals and checking up on all your grades and everything. They're proud of her, but they're a little more hands-off. Um, and and we see Ron, who is used to his mom taking care of every element of his well-being, uh, suddenly not having that taken care of and really having to learn how to become responsible for not just his well-being, but also his moods. Um, And that, you know, just because you're grouchy, because there's not anything good for supper, doesn't mean you get to be a, an absolute dick to everybody around you. And I, I do think it's a much more interesting dynamic that way than it would be if they all matured at the same time and were all suddenly very noble and glorious. Like, you know how in Narnia... Uh, Lewis gets around these children can suddenly sword fight by being like and in Narnia you suddenly magically be able to sword fight I'm, I'm glad there's not an element of that in Harry Potter where it's just like and suddenly they magically all became adults there's still a little bit of like bumps and growing pains and you know Harry has had Harry's experiences and Ron has not had all the same experiences as Harry and like hasn't lost any close family members yet and it's just, it's it's really interesting to see the different character development, especially among the trio, to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes it really interesting. And and I really like this thread that we're, we're picking up on of sort of like tracing adulthood through this book, because I hadn't necessarily had that in mind. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, there's so much here. And I think it's really, it's such like a good sort of snapshot of, like, what becoming an adult is like and you see them all going through it at different stages, at least, silly, at least for me, I remember very much like when I was a teenager, like, you, you look towards adulthood and you think that, like, once you become an adult, will be, like, you will know how things work and you'll know what you need to do and it will all, like, you'll just suddenly sort of have it together and then you become an adult, and you gradually, like, realize that, yes, you are a real adult, but you still don't know anything. And so it turns out that adults don't really know anything and just have to figure it out. At least this is sort of my experience of being an adult. But I, and I think that this is beautifully portrayed in this book, because you have Harry, who um, sort of from the beginning understands that he's got this huge thing to do, and he doesn't really know how he's going to do it, and he's just like, alright, I guess that's how it is. Cool. And so I feel like he has already, at the beginning of the book, sort of stepped over that threshold of, like, oh, yeah, being a grown-up doesn't mean I know what I need, like, know how to do things, but I'm just going to have to figure out how to do them anyways. And then Hermione and Ron, I think, start out the book still with this kind of magical idea that there will be a plan, that they will find out, and that, like, Harry must magically have it. And then I think Hermione gets freed of that notion and kind of accepts what's happening, and it takes Ron the longest to do that. And I think, yeah, it's just a very good portrayal of what becoming a grown-up is like.
2: Yeah, I think that
1: that really makes a lot of sense
2: to me that that they're, through what they're seeing, they're kind of interpreting that in different ways. And for for Hermione, I think one thing about becoming an adult, for me at least, is sort of moving from a space where you are protected by your parents or other adults in your life to a place where you feel more on equal footing with them. And sometimes you have to protect them. And I'm thinking about how Hermione has had to protect her parents. And I think that's a big thing to go through and um, makes a big difference. And And I agree that at the beginning of this book, uh, she did have this kind of innocence that was shaken from her about thinking there was going to be a plan. But I think that that's part of her maturing, uh, definitely. And I think for Harry, for him, one thing that sticks out to me is there's a point in the book um, where he's reading about uh, Dumbledore and uh, what uh, how he knew Grindelwald. And he's talking to Hermione about it, I think. And she says, well, he was just 17. And Harry says, but we're 17. You can't just let him off the hook for that. And so I think he's thinking specifically himself about it, um, about what it means to be an adult and what that responsibility means.
0: Yeah, I think like one of the one of the parts of the book that always sticks with me is when it's kind of the first I think it's like the first big conflict we see between the, the trio um, when Ron kind of blows up and is like we thought you had a plan we thought you and Dumbledore like had been spending all this time coming up with a plan and instead we're just kind of like apparating from place to place and, and Harry who is also frustrated that he and Dumbledore did not sit down and make a plan because he would like to have some direction and he's always relied on Dumbledore for that. Um, Kind of just blows up and is, is like of course there's no plan, of course I'm making that up. And that scene kind of sticks with me because it depicts the dynamic so well of there's sort of been this chain of command where Dumbledore tells Harry things and Harry tells the other thing the others things and Hermione picks up on more because she listens better and and that's how they do things and Dumbledore being dead undermines that that whole process but also it's not just about Dumbledore dying it's also about Harry's image of Dumbledore dying and Harry having to rethink his idea of who Dumbledore is uh, just shakes so much of the structure that we've seen the story relying on for the past six books.
1: Yeah, that's a really big part of Harry's growing up, too, is sort of having to um, remake this image of Dumbledore and, and, and really sort of get his hero taken off of a pedestal. And so, and I think that that is, that is a growing up he does throughout the book. I really like what you highlighted, Catherine, that there's different sort of, like, ways in which they grow up, and, yeah, Hermione, like, and I like how I think Harry, like, specifically notices it, like, Hermione having, yeah, done all this to protect her parents, and that she's, like, shows that she gets the seriousness of the situation, but it also does mean that, yeah, she's sort of totally inversed that, that parent-child role.
2: I would be curious to know uh, your thoughts about the uh, the King's Cross scene with Dumbledore in thinking about the way that uh, Harry has had to kind of take Dumbledore off of that pedestal in his mind. And yet we get to the end of the book and Dumbledore was still pulling strings all along and seems to have this knowledge of everything that happened And it's a very very godlike figure in a lot of ways, I think. And then even after that scene, when Harry and Ron and Hermione go up to uh, Dumbledore's office, or the headmaster's office, I guess, and um, he has this moment where Dumbledore's pride in him means so much. Did that seem to undo the... The remaking of Dumbledore that happened, or does it does it fit somehow uh, to you when you were reading it?
0: To me, it fits in the way that loving people is always complicated, especially parents. I mean, I think we do get to see Dumbledore acknowledge a little bit some of the harm he did, Mm. and I think that's very important. I. I don't think it undoes his flaws. I don't think it undoes Harry's disenchantment. Um, I think there's something very real in the idea that I've heard a few times that you don't start grieving until, like, the two-year anniversary of someone dying. Like, until then, it's just kind of floundering, and then the grieving starts. Um, And Harry's still very much in, in the early stages of grieving Dumbledore. Ooh, I'm getting into more like complex thoughts on grief than I expected to it's great but I, I think if anything it's just there's this reminder that someone can be really messed up and have really messed up and be flawed and problematic and you can still love them and seeing them in that love kind of changes how they appear because Dumbledore has been a parental figure to Harry, I think, probably more than anybody else. Um, And I don't think Dumbledore, like, recognized that enough, like, the effect he had on Harry that way. Mm, This is not answering your question. This is me just going, (laughs) yes and no. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's why I asked the question, because I sort of feel yes and no as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it does a good job of reflecting just the complexity of love and the complexity of grief. It's a weird little
1: scene, yeah, I think I mean, definitely agree, and I'm actually just I'm pulling out my copy because I want to because I think yeah, I mean I think in some ways it does I mean I think I think it I think it makes it complex and I think I think maybe it is also a reflection of the ways in which Harry is still sort of a child in that. He, he has done work sort of deconstructing Dumbledore, but he also still really wants to hold on to Dumbledore as, as someone to look up to, as someone who knows what's going on. And, and so I think, I think that, that that scene sort of represents that. And so the reason why I wanted to flip through it is I, I can never decide, and I wish I had done this close reading beforehand because I'm not going to do this close reading right now, But um, I can never decide, and I think that that's part of the point, of whether the scene at King's Cross is supposed to be somehow the actual Dumbledore actually communicating with Harry, or, um, like, Harry's mind manifesting this, and the reason why I want to do a close reading is, like, are there things that Harry could not actually know that happened in this scene, or are they all things that Harry could figure out. And so I really I, I am inclined towards a reading of this happening like being purely happening within Harry's head um, and being sort of a manifestation of what he wants to hear from Dumbledore. Um, and I think that's really interesting. It is. I think
2: that's definitely true that um, I, I don't know if Dumbledore ever says the words, I'm sorry, but he, he owns up to a lot of things that he did that were harmful that Harry has only just recently realized were actually set in place. So I I think it's definitely possible. I don't know, I think whether or not it is actual Dumbledore somehow being beamed into Harry's head or Harry inventing a figment Dumbledore, I think um, Tupper, what you said is is true either way that um that it still represents that complexity of how you view someone that you love but who has hurt you um or who has set things in motion that hurt you which is i guess the same thing so here's
0: a question that came up for me just on this reread is it a cop-out that harry didn't actually die i mean (laughs) yes
1: (laughs) <laughs> in that, like, I mean, I think that the fact that Harry didn't actually die is, is a mark of this very much being a children's fantasy series. Because of course the hero can't die at the end. I think in, in a lot of ways the, the sort of message of the books could have been more powerful. I don't know. I actually, I, I think I need to think more about that before I say that decisively. But I think it would have been interesting if Harry had actually died. But I don't think that he could have, given the, given how this 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 series of works is arranged. Um, and also I think because this series of books is invested into a degree maintaining, um, Dumbledore as good guy. And I think it would be a lot harder to do that if harry died but but I mean yeah yeah it's 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 a cop out for sure,
2: I think there is
1: i don't know what the definition of a cop out
2: is, but i it does seem like an easier choice, but I think that and maybe this was like fabricated after the choice of being like, well, Harry can't die um but there is reasoning presented, which is that like Voldemort didn't do it right, right that um by using Harry's blood to come back, he actually made it impossible for him to kill Harry. And, and I, I like that idea, that that the downfall and the, the sort of evilness, part of, part of evilness is this sort of incompetence or inability to understand other people and to take anything but his own valuing his own life and uh, trying to gain more power into account is ultimately what saves Harry and brings down Baltimore.
0: Yeah, I, well, first of all, I mean, Divergent killed off its main character. I'm just gonna, like, for all that, <laughs> all that Divergent is, I do not, ugh, we had a whole series on Divergent, I, I or an episode anyway. I have so many conflicting feelings about Divergent, but Divergent killed the main character and I think that's maybe the first like YA series I've seen that did that which is kind of fun but yeah Catherine I like I like what you bring up that Harry once again escaping highlights once again that Voldemort cannot value things that he does not cannot see the value in things that he does not value and that that's his fatal flaw and that is something that happens again and again is Voldemort discounting love and discounting teamwork and discounting you know loyalty that's not bred of fear and discounting muggle-borns and discounting uh you know like like Hagrid who is half giant and discounting house elves and um there is something really powerful to that story and you're right if Harry died you don't really get that as as strongly For what it's worth, I appreciate that Harry does not die. I like that. I actually like the epilogue, which I guess we probably have to talk about too because everybody always wants to talk about the epilogue. Um, But I do think it's kind of an interesting question that like... Or like point that once again, like this time Harry actually gets dead, but he doesn't get totally dead.
1: Yeah, I really like what you brought up, Catherine, because I think it's it's true that that is kind of the central thesis of all of the books is this that Voldemort fundamentally doesn't understand the importance of love and connection. And that is you you would not, like Tephor said, get that as strongly if um if Harry had stayed dead. So maybe I soften my judgment that it's a cop-out. But yes, epilogue. Uh, So I loved the epilogue when I first read the book. I was... I ate it right up. Um, I have less kind thoughts about the epilogue now. Um, But I want to hear your folks' thoughts on the epilogue.
2: Yeah, for me it was the same way that I loved it and wanted, like, a whole story in that era the first time I read it and this time I was uh, disappointed in a couple of things and I, I listened to uh, Witch Please on your recommendation and I think this might have been something that they brought up but uh, in the epilogue a lot of it is focused around um, uh, Harry reassuring Albus that if, he's, if he winds up in Slytherin it's okay and everybody else being kind of like no, it's not at all okay, uh, but in a joking way, but in a kind of joking serious way. And it it's just really frustrating because at the end of the battle, like, specifically said that everybody is sitting at different tables, and it's it's sort of like there's not houses, there's just everybody. and But then they went back, like, they had an opportunity to change, and now 19 years later it seems that nothing's changed. And, like, it's changed that Harry's like, no, actually, it's okay, but... He has to say that, so it doesn't really seem like they've made any progress.
0: Yeah. So, like, my complicated feelings around the epilogue are, at first I liked it. I thought it was a fun peek into the future. I still have a lot of warm feelings to it. This is not least because there's a, um, a fan art account that I follow that I've plugged before. Uh, that's Potter by... B L V N K. I don't know if they pronounce it Blunk or not. That does a lot of art of like Harry and Ginny in the future, mm-hmm. and I love it. They they have like such a nice feeling um, that I've gotten really committed to like Henny Canon stuff. <laughs> um, so I like that, but especially these days, it's true they go right back to the houses. They go right back to the ooh, bad Slytherins. And Harry becomes a
1: cop. And it's just, like, all right. I think it was very much Catherine, yeah, Witch, Please, who pointed that out really well, that it sort of all goes back to this. And, and you know, Ron feeds right into it, like, your granddad will never forgive you if you marry a pureblood. And, and all of this continues to come back. Um, I also... So, this we can continue talking about the epilogue if we need to, but I have been re- I have reminded myself of the one thing that I did really want to talk about with this book, which is Snape. And I have a lot of feelings about Snape, and I have a lot of feelings about the fact that Harry named a kid after Snape. And I will, I would like to, to open the floor to more thoughts on the epilogue before I go into my Snape rant.
2: Yeah, I also. Um was interested in Snape this time around. And reading through the Prince's Tale chapter, I was really surprised. I felt like, and this may be reading that I did uh, around when the book came out of, I don't know about fan fiction, but at least other people's sort of like theories about Snape. And there was so much discussion of Snape. I just felt like in my mind I had built up something so much more and reading through his series of memories about Lily that it's really so scant and it is really hard for me to see where Harry got the idea that Snape was the bravest man he ever knew.
0: Yeah I mean like the whole thing with Snape and Lily like Lily died when she was 21 years old which I think kind of contextualizes for me Snape's confusing uh, long-term high school crush with like true love of the ages because like if you've gone through the whole getting married having a child and dying by the time you're 21 there's still a lot of like teenage feelings there and I just can't help thinking about Snape as somebody stunted in growth at 21 emotionally or maybe even earlier than that. I have a lot of trouble reconciling, like, petty, gross, stalker Snape with, like, noble double agent Snape, who admittedly does very important work for the cause and, you know, does endure a lot of horrible things in order to maintain his status as a double agent. Or not a double agent, a spy. Double agent is when you're feeding both sides information, right? Anyway... I don't know I didn't read a lot of that kind of book but I find it very hard to reconcile those characters I don't feel like they're well I don't feel like Snape is a well integrated character as a whole and that makes it very difficult for me to kind of get a grip on him because I could see where bravery could come in in being this person like acted as a spy for 20 years and fed very important information. But, like, I don't really get where you get bravery from this guy was so obsessed with my mom that he hated both my dad and me
1: forever. Yeah. So I have I have historically shared this sort of, like, not being able to reconcile those things, Teffer. And I think that I figured it out on this rereading, or at least I came up with a theory that makes sense to me. And it comes through Preacher. So there's a really, there's, like, an interesting bit where, oh, where Harry is like, but, like, after they found the locket and they figured out about Regulus, Harry's like, oh, but how could Creature have betrayed Sirius to Voldemort if he was mistreated by Voldemort in this way earlier? Uh, like, how does that work? And Hermione explains it to him, and she's basically like, well, his, like, allegiance towards Voldemort might have changed, but his ideology didn't, or Hermione probably probably explained it better, but she basically is sort of like he, he, he understood that the dark, that like Voldemort was not someone to be trusted, but that doesn't mean that he sort of extrapolated that into like a dislike of or distrustfulness for everyone associated with Voldemort and Death Eaters. And, and, and it makes total sense with Creature. And I think that we can read Snape through a similar lens and it makes a lot more sense. Because I think the way I think the way that the books want you to read Snape is, you know, because of this thing that happened with Lily, he has now totally, like, he is he, become a member of the Order of the Phoenix and believes in the cause and all of that. And I think that really what happened with Snape is his allegiance changed so he hates Voldemort now because Voldemort killed the woman that he scare quotes loved but his his ideology didn't change at all like i i firmly believe that snape still has a disdain for muggleborns he definitely still like has the orientation of a bully and all of this and i think that he makes a lot more he made a lot more sense to me once i sort of figured that out that it's like okay like he is basically Snape is not working for the Order of the Phoenix and Dumbledore for all of these years because he believes in it. He's just fueled by a grudge for Voldemort. Like, that is entirely... He wants to take Voldemort down, not because he believes that Voldemort is wrong, fundamentally, but because he wants revenge on Voldemort for killing Lily. Um, And then I think that those... I don't know, in my mind, those different, all those different facets of Snape make more sense to me when I think of him like that. Yeah,
2: I think that's really, that really does clear it up a lot. It's uh, it's sort of, if you stop trying to see Snape in a comparison with, with other kind of hero- heroic figures and do just see that as his motive is revenge or even something less complicated than that, just hatred and hurt. That it's not even something he's thought through so much. He's sort of, uh, like you said, tougher, kind of stuck uh, at this age where he was when he was obsessed with Lily. And then he was, uh, she was in his eyes taken away from him. I hadn't thought about that comparison with Creature and I really like that. And I just want to continue thinking about that more.
0: Yeah, I really started reading Snape differently after i had some like trauma informed education so learning about trauma and how trauma works and i i think it's too bad you know we get hints about snape having a really difficult childhood a really difficult teenage years kind of not really having anybody in his corner but i i feel like what could have been a really kind of sensitive nuanced look at um how trauma affects people instead mm-hmm. falls into kind of the like you know the myth that being bullied makes white boys into school shooters like it 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 falls short of being a look of on a look at trauma and it turns into a way to make excuses and I think that's where the character building of Snape falls short for me you know think about what might have happened if, say, the Weasleys had extended the same kind of warmth and compassion they do to the people who are in their circle to Snape. If, if some people... But no, but that's that's falling into the same... That's falling into the same trap. It's just like it's almost a look at that, and then it's not. I can't really see a way to, like, forgive him because he's never looking for that. Snape is never sorry for the shitty things he does. Snape is is tortured and tragic or whatever, but he never admits, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have been absolutely horrible to a child because I didn't get to date the girl I wanted to.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good way to look at it, that um, the main way that Snape is supposed to be redeemed is not through his own remorse, but is through us feeling sorry for him on account of his past. Um, Which, yeah, is very much how the news likes to portray any white boy who has ever done an atrocious thing.
2: That makes me think about the Malfoys, too, and their kind of redemption arc. I don't know. Are we supposed to feel sorry for them in a similar way? Because in this book, they're made slightly less powerful by Voldemort. And we sort of see an attempt at kind of humanizing them when we've seen, you know, mostly this bully uh, of Draco and his father is pretty much the same way. And then in this book, it seems like their turn is that, oh, they're actually just looking out for their family. They don't uh, necessarily want to hurt anybody else. They just want to keep themselves safe and then it's okay. I, It's not that they're sort of made into, um, you know, heroic figures in the book, but uh, I think it's interesting because I think there's similar things happening with them.
0: What I find interesting about the Malfoys, and I do actually feel some sympathy for the Malfoys, and I will explain why, Um, but what I find interesting about the Malfoys is I don't feel that they are really set up as more evil than the other Death Eaters. Um, that sort of starts in Chamber of Secrets, like, you know, Lucius Malfoy gives Riddle's diary to Ginny. But then that whole storyline of the kind of tension between Arthur and Lucius just kind of dissolves and we don't really see it again. Um, we just see Lucius as, as a powerful Death Eater because he's very wealthy. They certainly don't seem more evil in battles or whatever than some of the more sadistic Death Eaters. You know, they're still death eaters and they're still um, white supremacists and they're bad. I'm not saying that they're not bad people. They're bad people. But I don't see them written as more sinister than anybody else. The reason that I that they get my sympathy at the end of the series is that I think as soon as Voldemort starts using uh, Draco, they no longer are into Voldemort at all. Um, the minute that that Voldemort is putting Draco in danger, um, you know we see Narcissa trying to protect him in in half-blood prince, and uh, that's where I get sympathy because at that point Draco is basically held hostage to get his parents to do what Voldemort wants them to do, and that like especially for me as a parent is something that does get my sympathy even for really horrible people. <laughs> I don't know that it's redemptive. I don't know that it redeems them. But but I do feel for them in this book. Especially Narcissa, because she just kind of like, it kind of seems like she's not really driving the bus.
1: Yeah, I agree that there's something very humanizing in, in the way that, that the Malfoy story plays out. In, in a way that I find more... Almost more sympathetic than Snape. Like, not entirely sympathetic. Like, as you said, they are still white supremacists. But, yeah, you definitely also see them get disillusioned with Voldemort. And it would be interesting to know to what degree they get disillusioned with Voldemort. And if it is sort of a surface level like Snape, where it's like they don't like Voldemort anymore, but they're still really married to their ideology. Or or if it's a deeper shift. Could we
2: jump to talking about Bellatrix and Molly now? I wanted to ask, and I don't know, I mean, obviously, whenever you're reading a book, what you're currently thinking about and what's currently happening for you is kind of getting uh, put onto the page as well as the words that are actually there. But um, when I was reading uh, the Not My Daughter uh, scene, it really felt to me like it was very important in that moment that one woman did not have children and one woman did, and one was this virtuous person and one was this evil person, um, and that that was set, being set up in a way. And I'm curious if that occurs to anybody else or if, if that's just something I'm reading into it.
0: I had not read it that way, and I would have to read it again and give it some thought. I would absolutely believe that that is there because this author loves falling into every single trope about gender. So (laughs) I 100% believe that it's there. I haven't specifically noticed it. Uh, I have my own feelings about that scene about Molly, but I, I haven't thought specifically about the comparison between them.
1: Yeah, I don't know that that's something that had like jumped out to me before, but I think I think definitely, like, at least in so much as, as Tuffer was saying, like, the author does love to play on these stereotypes about femininity, but we, and I think we're definitely supposed to read that, like, obviously Molly is good and Bellatrix is evil, but I think we're very much supposed to see Molly's motherliness, her sort of traditional caretaking and all of that as part of her virtue and and why she triumphs over Bellatrix. Because we have no reason to think that Molly is necessarily like an especially accomplished dueler or anything. And yet she beats Bellatrix in a duel. And so I and I think that we're likewise supposed to see Bellatrix's childlessness. And I would also say her Infidelity, if not actual, um, there's definitely the dynamic of Bellatrix is married, but Bellatrix is also very much deeply in love with Voldemort. Um, and and I think that we are supposed to see all of those things as part of Bellatrix's evil, for sure.
2: Yeah, I think um, it, it feels to me also that there's a sort of negative portrayal of sexuality with Bellatrix, too, Um there's a moment I was looking for it in the book but not able to find it but um I think it's when they believe that Harry is dead and he's just come back from King's Cross and Bellatrix is speaking to Baltimore and says my lord my lord and it says that she says it like a lover and uh I agree that we're sort of meant to see that her true sort of marriage, if you will, is to Voldemort, but I think that there's a sort of evil and taboo sexuality that's portrayed in her.
0: I agree that that sexuality is a huge part of why Bellatrix is supposed to be evil, and I uh, genuinely thought that Rodolphus Lestrange was dead. I genuinely thought he died in Azkaban. That's what I, I just looked it up, and uh, he he was not, so yeah, she's also you know not monogamous and that is a problem I think then the costuming of the movie is you know amped that sexuality up so campily with with uh, Helena Bottom Carter's boobs just always being out um and heaving constantly uh but I don't think that's such a stretch because it feels like every time she talks in the book she is panting or gasping or heaving or throwing herself around and I mean you know I, I, there's something to be said for the cult leader who has women in his thrall. It's a little weirder when he looks like a snake, but like, you know, some people are into that or whatever. Um, but I do think there's definitely kind of a, a Madonna horror complex set up between Molly and Bellatrix, where Molly, you know, does the good thing and has a bunch of children and keeps house despite being a talented witch, and Bellatrix does the bad thing and doesn't have children and goes to Azkaban. But, like, you know, also Bellatrix doesn't have children because she was in Azkaban for 20 years, so there's that. I am so curious about wizard birth control. Side note, by the way.
1: Yeah, I think it's very much a mark of, like, what this series is like, that we just hear nothing. Because I was thinking about this because I I have recently been reading rereading one of my other... one of my favorite fantasy series, uh, which is The Protector of the Small Quartet by Tamara Pierce, which is, it is a middle grade uh, quartet. And, like, birth control is just, like, very much talked about. And it's great. And I'm like, I just, I love, I love this. Anyways, yeah, we need to, we, I, I assume that there's, like, a potion or something for that. But, yeah, woefully untalked about. Yeah, that had had not occurred
2: to me, and it seems like it would be, I, I don't know, not necessarily something that would come up in the story, but definitely something <laughs> that people would need to, to talk about.
0: We do really have to, to wrap up. But the thing that I I do want to say, the thing that I really like about that scene is this is something I've talked about before in one of the previous books. I can't remember which. But I think a lot about how Molly and Arthur Weasley, you know, were part of the effort to defeat Voldemort the first time and then went and had just their bucolic peaceful life and you know had their children and were working on raising good children in the world and i think a lot about how especially on this read through how devastating it must have been to have that that safety that they perceived Just completely, completely obliterated. And now you're back to where you were when you were trying to make the world safe the first time. And so, Molly protecting her children, to me, is not just a mother protecting her children, but is also her protecting the work she did the first time around. And, you know, trying to make sure that all the friends she lost and all the work she did as a member of the Order of the Phoenix was not in vain and her children are really representative of that piece and of all the the sacrifice that she and her family and her friends had to go through to establish that in the first place so for me that's that's what has been speaking to me uh about molly's kind of journey in the series
1: i really like that reading of that scene as well
2: yeah me too
1: i like that she seems
2: exasperated all of the events, and she's like, and now this, and it's not happening. It just isn't. And I really do love that. It feels so powerful to me. That wraps up this series.
0: Now we're going to move on to reading exclusively books by Black authors for a while, and hopefully also some trans authors to make up for it and do our penance. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It was really
1: nice to meet you and, and have this conversation.
2: Yeah, it was lovely. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It was uh, it was delightful to to meet you and chat with you. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a
0: book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com.
1: Follow us on Twitter at yeahpodcast, and individually, I'm at the balesaurus. Taffer is at Tepper Bear. Um, would you do you have Twitter, Catherine? Do you want to share your Twitter? I do have Twitter. Uh, I don't
2: know my handle because I recently changed it. Uh, it was actually for a very long time Luna's Logic, which was a reference to Luna telling Harry how to get into the Ravenclaw common room, and it is now some version of my name. So I think uh, that it's searchable in that way. I apologize. <laughs>
0: We can put it in the show notes. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shout outs, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yeahpodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Rashi, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire,
1: Lizzie Tenholt and Chantal Thomas. We love you guys. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend.
0: Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com.
1: This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows in our network at upfordnetwork.com.
0: If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old, favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child
2: Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give
0: grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast, helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.
1: Dungeons,
2: Dragons, Canada, The Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation,
1: Angels, Demons, Squirrels,
2: Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Barbarians, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, plains, Sewers, Lavender. Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons & Dragons
1: podcast, right here on the Upford Network.